Good morning. Lots of sadness uh, preceding this. Uh, yes, it's true. Daniel was like a father to me. And so you can pray for me as I, as I do this. So today's word comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Ephesians 2, verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, over the last few weeks, what we've been doing together is talking about the purpose for which God created each of us. And each of us who calls upon the name of the Lord, as long as we draw breath, has a part to play in the unfolding drama of God's redemptive purposes. But there is more to our calling than just our individual calling. It's a good and right thing to pursue that and try to understand what it is that God created me for and you for. How is it that he is to put his glory on display uniquely through us, each one of us, but there is a calling that we, we all have together as well. In fact, the majority of the commands in the New Testament are in the plural. And because, you know, most of us grew up in America where individualism, which is a good thing as far as it goes, but we hold to it as a creed, it can almost seem unintelligible to hear that we as a people are called to work out God's purposes, not just I myself. And if we miss this corporate calling that belongs to all of us together, then we're going to miss the meaning of huge portions of the New Testament, which was addressed to communities, not mainly individuals. And so God creates, yes, each individual and endows them with grace to accomplish a certain purpose in this world. But God also creates communities of his people and endows that community with grace to accomplish certain purposes in this world as well. Now, we only have time to talk about the one purpose, the, I w what I would say is the main purpose of the church. Last week we talked about the Great Commission and how as we scatter into the world, we, we go and we make disciples announcing the kingdom of God and telling people that God in Christ is no longer holding people's sins against them and he is reconciling those people to himself. But as we gather, as we think about our corporate identity, we need to spend some time with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 to understand it. Uh, the church isn't the only thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians, but the mystery of the church is for sure at the heart of his discourse in this letter. So the summary of everything I'm going to say is as follows. When the kingdom of God comes to a people, it creates a dwelling place for God. When the kingdom of God comes to a people, it creates a dwelling place for God. So first, we're going to see why that happens. Second, we're going to see how that happens. And then third, 
Paul is going to show us what this dwelling place looks like. And all of those combined together will give us a real sense of our calling together as a community. So number one, the first two points, shorter, third point is longer. So number one, why does the kingdom establish communities of Christian witness? We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, and you, by the way, plural, y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, what Paul is telling us here is that God is summing up all things in Christ. And the process by which he does that is the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom. At the heart of that good news is a king who stands in the midst of his congregation as one who has been slain. His death and resurrection was the crescendo in the redemptive movement of God in this age. Because of his shed blood and according to the riches of his grace, the good news of the kingdom is that God is reconciling sinners to himself. And this whole work is a work of grace. He says, it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So, to answer our question, why does the announcement of the kingdom create communities of Christian witness? Because in a place where God formerly had no people, the kingdom arrives and creates a people. And then, go, and then Paul goes on to show us exactly how that creation takes place. So number two, we've seen why the kingdom creates these communities of Christian witness. Number two, how does the kingdom establish communities of Christian witness? Let's continue. Verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made 
in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus... Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the answer to our question is this. The kingdom establishes communities of Christian witness. How? It establishes communities of Christian witness as Christ preaches peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Before the arrival of Christ, Jew and Gentile were alienated from each other. In fact, Paul says there was a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And the reason for this is because the Gentiles were considered the uncircumcision by those who consider themselves the circumcision. And remember, the sign of circumcision was given to Abraham as a sign to mark apart, to set apart the people of the covenant from those who were not inside the covenant. However, Paul argues in Romans, you don't have to turn there, but uh, he argues in Romans that even the Jews themselves have become the uncircumcision because through the breaking of the law, they have removed themselves from the protection of God's covenant blessings. So, Paul is making this whole argument that hostility abounds between Jew and Gentile. Separation, alienation, But then listen again to these magnificent words in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we've seen why the kingdom creates communities of Christian witness, namely, because when God's kingdom arrives, he creates a people for himself by grace. And now we've seen how that happens, namely, that the hostility between the people of God and God himself has been transformed into peace by the very one who is himself our peace. And now we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at how this community of Christian witness actually looks. What are its marks? What is God up to and created them? What is the purpose of this gathering? What is the purpose of this community, both here in this room and across the world? 
So number three, what does God's dwelling place look like? Starting in verse 19 of Ephesians 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's several things going on here. The first is that God builds his people into his dwelling place, number one, by giving us a new identity. Did you see that? Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now he begins that verse with, so then, which indicates that he's reaching back to what Paul has just said in the previous verses. Before the grace of God came, before the kingdom arrived, our condition was this, back in verse 11. At that time, remember, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So our condition before Christ arrived was without hope, utterly dire. But then Christ appeared and lived our lives and died our deaths in our stead that we might be brought into his family, made one with the rest of his people in perfect union and harmony. And then Paul goes on to explain more fully what happened when Christ brought us into his family. He said, in Christ we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now let's look at those two in turn, saint, uh, fellow sa uh, citizens, excuse me, and members of the household of God. First, he says that the community of Christian witness, which was the result of the arrival of God's kingdom, creates a new citizenship and its members. By virtue of our belief in Christ's death for our sins and resurrection, we have been made citizens of another country, a heavenly country. Now, I, had, I talked about this a while ago, far more at length here. I'm just going to make a couple comments. The, writers, the writer of Hebrews uh, has given us one of the most beautiful passages on what that means to be a citizen of another country. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For... People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Mm. The point of this passage is to say that having hope in the city of God, it, that, it, in the city of God that God has prepared for his people is what gives us strength to endure suffering and even death. And that's the new identity Christ has given us. Citizens, fellow citizens with the saints. Like we belong to the city of God. In addition to new citizenship, 
The communities of Christian witness are called members of the household of God. Now, here it gets even more intimate than citizenship. Like, we are not merely given legal status in God's city. We are not merely made citizens. We are made sons and daughters of his household. Imagine it. Like, to be an immigrant desiring citizenship in a country, and you hear that the king has approved your presence in this country. That is good news enough. You may be a citizen of this country that you have so long desired to inhabit. But then you are summoned to the king's house where he tells you that not only are you a legal citizen, but you'll be living in his home, calling him father, with access to his resources and his attention. It would be beyond belief. And yet, this is what has happened. We have been brought into God's kingdom in an act of unspeakable love and kindness, and he has made us sons and daughters. When we go preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, we go preaching far more than citizenship in a heavenly country. Certainly not less, but far more. There are some people, no doubt, who find it more comfortable to think of themselves as mere legalized citizens of God's city. And they'll be a good citizen, paying their taxes, showing up to the required meetings, doing their best to obey laws. But what does Paul say in Romans 8? For God has given us the spirit of citizenship, by whom we cry, good king and sovereign ruler of the city. No. He says, God has given us the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Yes, we are citizens of the city of God, but even more fundamentally, Paul teaches us, God's people are members of his household, dearly beloved and the objects of his fatherly affection. So, we are being built into a dwelling place for God. And the first means to that end is that we've been given a new identity, citizens of the heavenly city and members of the household of God. The second way he is building us into his dwelling place is by giving us a new shape a new identity, and then a new shape. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 20 of Ephesians 2. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And here's where we start to see the imagery of a building, specifically a temple. And we'll get to the temple in a moment. But here, let's just look at what Paul is saying about how God is building his people into a dwelling place for God. He, first, he says that they're being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, most commentators believe that because of the order of these words here, Paul is not referring to New Testament apostles and Old Testament prophets. In that case, he probably would have said, prophets and apostles, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Rather, he means that the foundation of this dwelling place of God is the apostles commissioned by Jesus and the prophets who taught in the early church. Prophecy, of course, meaning not primarily foretelling, but preaching, truth-telling, 
The point is, God's new society, God's new family, God's new dwelling place is founded upon the teaching of the apostles, the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. This means that there is a specific shape the people of God take as they, they are being built into God's dwelling place. And this is where it's helpful to know that in Paul's day, when a builder wanted to fit stones together in order to erect a structure, they, they didn't do it the way that we do it. In our day, we take bricks or stones or whatever, and we slather them with mortar and just put another row on top, more mortar, put another row on top. The thing is, if you have enough mortar, the stones can be as jagged and irregular as you like. I, I'm saying that. I'm not a mason, so I, maybe that's not entirely true, but, but you understand as, as, far as, I, as far as I know. But in the first century, masons didn't work with mortar. That means they had to make sure that every stone was cut perfectly, that any imperfections were smoothed out so that the stones fit together without any defect. And that's the kind of precision that masons use to erect buildings. And if that's so, how much more will God carefully and patiently chisel away all the imperfections of his people so that we might fit together into his dwelling place? And I'll leave that work there because that's what the rest of Ephesians is about, putting off the old self, addressing ourselves with a new self in Christ according to the teaching of the apostles and prophets. So you can go read that for yourself if you like. Second, not only are God's people being shaped according to the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but there is something even more fundamental than that which shapes us, namely the cornerstone, Christ himself, to which all the apostles and the prophets are pointing. Now, again, it's helpful to understand how buildings were built back then. If masons took great care to shape the stones that went into the walls then they took exceedingly great care with the cornerstone because it was the cornerstone that set the lines for the rest of the wall. If there was an imperfection in the cornerstone, then the entire building would be misaligned. So it's obvious that what Paul means by this metaphor is that the temple God is building out of his people is being built into the same shape and definition of his son, Jesus Christ. The contours of Christ's life become the same contours of his people's life. God takes great care in shaping communities of Christian witness like us so that he might find a suitable place to dwell within them. So we are being built into a dwelling place for God. And he does that by first giving us a new identity, second, shaping us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. The third way that he gives us a new shape is by granting us a new dignity. We see that in, uh, I don't have the verse marked, somewhere in Ephesians 2. I already read it, so just listen. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul calls the Ephesians, Ephesian Christians and all who would believe subsequently, like us, he calls us the temple 
of God. Now, when Paul says the word temple, he's, he's pulling on a thread that, that goes throughout the entire scriptures. And if we're going to see how astonishing it is that he says, look, you people, you are the temple of God, his very dwelling place. If we're going to see and understand what that means, we have to take a moment and step back so we can see the whole picture. First of all, what is a temple? Well, not just in the Bible, but any temple in the ancient world, this is a place where heaven and earth overlapped and, and interlocked. This is a place where people would come to meet with God. That's what a temple was. That was its purpose, right? It was the place where you met with God. Some people would argue that we find the first mention of the temple in the Garden of Eden, and I would agree, but that's too much for us right now. Let's just start with the first explicit mention, the tabernacle. During the time of the Exodus, when God brought his people out of Egyptian slavery into the promised land, they had a long journey through the wilderness, and God commanded Moses to make a tabernacle. Not much more than long pieces of wood made into poles and and fabric that hung off of them. It was a portable sanctuary that God's people could take down and erect whenever they stopped and whenever they went out. And in the center of that whole complex of fabric and poles was the most holy place where God's presence was. And this is where he would meet with Moses and with Aaron. And we might not understand how believable it was that he met there with them. You see, before they erected the tabernacle, the Lord did meet the congregation of Israel on Mount Sinai. And when the Lord descended upon the mountain, it was in a great flame. And the ground trembled and everybody was so afraid they didn't even dare to come near. But God in invited Moses into the fire and met with him and spoke with him. And so this new place, this most holy place in the center of the tabernacle was now the place where God said, this is the place where I will dwell among my people. And then later in the monarchy that was established in Israel, King Solomon was commissioned by God to build a permanent tabernacle, a, a temple, which he says will be the place where he will meet with his people and dwell among them. The very presence of God would be in the most holy place. If people wanted to meet with God, they went to the temple. But if you've read that series of narratives, you know, the monarchy spiraled deeper and deeper into sin and wickedness over the preceding generations, and God threatened to remove his presence from the, tape, from the temple. Think of that. This is the place where God dwells with his people. This place and no other. And he says, the spiral is getting so deep. The wickedness and iniquity, so thick. But the consequence will be that I will remove my presence from the temple. And then when we get to Ezekiel 8 through 10, we are given a vision of the temple as God sees it, full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Ezekiel sees a vision of a throne in the most holy place of the temple. 
And in that vision, angels come and lift the throne out of the temple, and they bear it away, and the glory of God goes with it. And the point of that vision is that the temple has been forsaken because of God's people's sins. They may no longer meet with God in that place. It is vacant. He is no longer home. And later, the temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians, and the people were sent into exile. And this was a horrifying prospect. Think of it. The one place where God's people were sure that they could meet with him was gone. There was trouble on every side, and they needed to go meet with God, and they could not. But hundreds of years later, God sent his own son into the world in the form of a man, and he walked into the new temple that had been built, and he said something astonishing. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they're astonished by that. So this can't, can't be. It's taken us many decades to build this. But then John adds this little parenthetical remark that is amazing. He says, but Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. You see that? Jesus was claiming that he, that he was the new temple. He was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. He was where the presence of God now dwelt on this earth. And if you want to meet with God, you go to Jesus. This is what he's claiming in this moment, and it's astonishing. And indeed... He said, destroy the temple in three days, and in three days I'll raise it up. They did destroy that temple when they crucified him. And just as he promised, he raised it up three days later. And then if you go to the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, when John is given a, a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he says, in that place I saw no temple for the Lord God Almighty is the temple and the Lamb. So you see this theme of the temple going from the beginning to the end. And it is such a crucial theme in the scriptures because it is the temple where we and everyone else who might be saved come to meet with God. And now, now, hear again these words from Paul. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So do you understand why I say that God's people have been given an unspeakable dignity? He has made us, even us, into the dwelling place of God. Brothers and sisters, the people of God's kingdom who've been reconciled to God by grace are now the temple of God by virtue of his spirit that dwells within us. Why? I don't know. It's, it's beyond belief. Somehow, God delights to put his greatest treasure in the most fragile vessels. 
and he has put his spirit within us. Look around. This is the dwelling place of God. It's astonishing. So now let me end by telling you a couple of things I think this means for us. First, think of what I said last week in, about the Great Commission and its relation to our individual calling. If we don't take up the task of making disciples, what I said last week, if we don't take up that task, nobody else will. That is given to the disciples of Jesus Christ and nobody else. And that is exactly what we have here in Ephesians when it comes to our calling as a people, our purpose as a community. There is no other place on this earth that God has chosen as his dwelling besides us. Just as the most holy place in the tabernacle and then the temple later on was holy, that is separated from every other building on earth for a very specific purpose, namely to be the place where people meet with God, so it is within our community. This is the place, not the, not the brick and the mortar and the iron, us, the people. We together are God's dwelling place. And right now, there are people driving down the road. There are people in stores getting ready to have a day somewhere, going around the city, whatever. But right in their midst, God dwells among them. How do we know? Because we are here and God has decided to make us his dwelling place. It's astonishing. Second, this is to help us understand the urgency of why we gather like this every Sunday. Not only does God dwell in our midst as we gather, yes, but that reality, us gathering, is a witness to the world that God is king. We gather to raise our voices in song so that we might witness to the world that our king has done great things. We bend our knees in prayer to witness to the world that our king hears the cries of the brokenhearted. We sit under the preached word to witness to the world that we are under the authority of our king. We come to this table to witness to the world that though we are sinners all, our king has passed through an unspeakable ordeal in order to forgive us and bring us back into his family. Where else, where else can you go right this moment or any moment of the week? Where else can you go and see this magnificent drama enacted week after week? The king has arrived and we are his people. And we gather under his authority and witness to the world that the kingdom has arrived. And though we perform our parts haltingly, though we take it by faith that God dwells among us when we gather, it shall not always be so that we have to take it by faith. One day, one day our faith shall be sight. And in that day, there shall be no temple but only the Lamb whose face shines with the radiance of glory unspeakable. And today, 
we gather. And that means that we are a witness to the world that the reality of that age has been implanted presently in this age. Right here, in us. And that is a magnificent calling that we all have together. So, we come now to the table of God, Christ's table. He is our host at this table. He has set it for us, and he set it for us knowing all that has transpired this week. And when Paul describes this meal in 1 Corinthians, he says, people of God, as you eat this bread, as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that is why we are here, to proclaim his death until he comes. So let me pray for us, and then we will gather and eat and drink. Father in heaven, thank you for reminding us of your goodness. And thank you for the great work that you have done to bring us together and build us into a community for whom Christ is all. We pray that you would further awaken us to our calling together so that we might be communities of Christian witness in this world because we love the one who has risen and made us into his dwelling place. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, come and welcome to Jesus Christ.